It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. And I am so thrilled that you're tuning in for a number of reasons. Our nation has gone through a very uh, difficult time and continues to look forward with uncertainty. And I believe that though the elections are behind us, uh, there are difficult days that lie ahead. And, and I don't say that to make you feel already like, wow, I'm, I'm listening to a very difficult broadcast. I, I, I want to preface what we're about to study today with that understanding that I believe that God is preparing the church for some adversity. Though the elections may have gone the way you wanted it to go, I believe that God is going to be pruning his church, that there is some difficult days that lie ahead, perhaps financially even for this country. I, I find it difficult to make the assumption that somehow we are going to skirt, skate by the idea that we could borrow $5 trillion to get through COVID-19 without implications financially on this country, or whatever the burdens may that we may face that lie ahead. I know that we've already had a a, a very topsy-turvy week. There have been some challenges already this week. Perhaps you've experienced that personally as well. And, and so I, I want to just shift gears a little bit here today and help us to understand as a church that we need to be ready. We need to be pruned. We need to be strengthened for the storms that lie ahead. We need to be standing on a solid rock in Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and so on Sundays, we've actually been examining Matthew chapter 10, even though here on the broadcast, we've really been putting our eyes on, a, on uh, really into the book of 1 Corinthians. Let me just take you a little bit into what we've been studying here as of late in Matthew chapter 10, as we've been examining the landscape today and how God has called us to more, more than perhaps what we have been committed to. It, it, it's time for complacency and apathy in the church to be a thing of the past. It is time for the church to rise up as the people after God's heart, a discipled people, a people of discipline and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is time that we start to apply the very principles that Jesus instilled in his disciples when he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There, it is time for us to be a people that understand that we have a role to play as the body of Christ. We're, we've been so complacent with sitting and soaking and just taking in knowledge. It is now time that we rise up and disciple others because persecutions are coming. He tells us in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 16, listen to these words. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, 
and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, I want to put our attention here just briefly into verses 24 perhaps all the way through 25, if we have the time to do so. You might think, well, that's only a couple verses, and you'll see why I believe we'll take the duration of our time here today. In Matthew 10, 24 to 42, when you go through those 19 verses, what you find is that the Lord is calling his people to follow him. It's almost through this section, you see that it's almost as if he's teaching his disciples, but his eyes are glancing up to you and I in the here and now, because the cascading effect of these obedient acts as the 12 would go out, and we know that it would only be 11, the 12th would betray him. And of those 11, a 12th would be selected, and the Lord himself would choose Saul, who would be Paul, to go to the Gentiles. And so God's perfect planning, they would go out and these instructions would apply to them, but it was also determined by God, pre-appointed by him, that all of these instructions would cascade all the way through the generations to you and I. Now listen to these words, Matthew 10, 24 to 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple, that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Now, this is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ on the matter of discipleship and what it costs and what it involves and and consequently what it demands, that it demands our great attention to this subject matter. In fact, everything that we should be doing in the church today should be about this great purpose, as he declared in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're to go into all the world and make disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, our Lord is making disciples. He's building them up. These methetes, they're learners, and this group of 12 are now going to be infused with the teachings of Jesus Christ for three years, and then they're to go out and do likewise, and that cascades to you and I. It means more than leading people to Jesus Christ. And you think, wait a minute, I thought that's what it's about. It is But that's not the end of the commission. That is rather the beginning. In fact, I never go to the stage on a Sunday morning without that as my motivation. That we're to build the saints for the work of ministry according to Ephesians chapter 4. And he tells us in verses 12 to 13, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I believe that is the perspective of the teacher. We're to develop mature disciples who in turn go and develop others. I mean, it really, if we look at the multiplication factor of all of this, I believe that of the 2.4 billion who, who claim to be Christian, there's probably about a billion of those who are actually authentic 
believers, not Matthew 7 kind of believers who claim that they're followers of Christ but aren't really following Christ. So let's say that there's a billion Christians in the world of the 7 billion plus people. Okay, that's still a significant number of folks. If we were to do exactly as we're instructed to do according to this text and all of the instructions of Jesus Christ, because he's going to repeat this throughout the Gospels, if we were to do exactly as he tells us to do, it doesn't have to be so daunting after all, because if all of the Christians, the the real followers of Jesus, were to arise and go and disciple someone else, we would double the population of Christians in this world in one year. You'd go from one billion sold out for Jesus Christians to two billion sold out for Jesus Christians. And by 2022, if they also did likewise, you could have two billion new Christians in a matter of two years if we were obedient to these instructions. The Lord Jesus wants us to learn from him. He wants us to submit under his teaching to prepare us, yes, even for difficult days that lie ahead, to be a people of discipline and submission to the Lord Jesus. He says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I, I really believe that that's the essence of of what conversion is. I mean, conversion is identifying yourself as one who is willing to learn from Jesus Christ and to do as he has commanded. It's in effect saying, I choose to be a learner of the Lord Jesus Christ, to submit to his instruction, even though it will cause me to wrestle with my own desires for sin and my obedience in how I serve him in the world. Because there are really three phases of our identity in Christ. Number one is to acknowledge his lordship, to repent of our sin, to declare his authority, that we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, and therefore we are now in allegiance to him. We have been betrothed to another. According to Matthew 12, 36, we're no longer of the darkness. We are now of the light. We have chosen a side, according to Joshua, Joshua 24, 15. So we're now with him, and we have declared his lordship. That's phase one. The next step in the sanctification confirmation process is you're being consecrated and set apart to be used by the Lord. I believe the second step is, is we are being transformed by the washing and renewing of our mind, according to Romans chapter 12. All of those impurities being purged from us. And as we are maturing in our faith, then the devil has to use new ways to tempt us because we're no longer being drawn away by the things we were previously tempted by. But we know he's relentless, so he must stay in a posture of of prayer and dependency on God through this. But just being less sinful is not the standard because there's a third stage that we must then attain to, that we must Ask the Lord to use us to his glorious purposes for, and that's to be the the active disciple that's learning his ways, becoming Christ-like, and serving as Christ did in this world, a place that absolutely desperately needs it, needs to see believers out there who are the light in the darkness because there are people destitute and desperate for truth. They may not even recognize that they need it. This is the stuff of genuine conversion. It's it's an amazing thing that we often think that somehow just being less sinful is the standard. It is time that we raise the bar. 
Far too often, what we've done is we've lowered the standard to appease our nominal efforts as though being somewhat good is good enough. We pat ourselves on the back as if less sin is the result that we ultimately seek. And without dedication to the cause of Christ, we will compromise in almost anything and feel justified in doing it. I mean, several years ago, I remember a pastor sharing a story about a woman who had claimed to be a Christian for several years, had amassed a following, had risen to some level of fame as she was giving her testimony about the Lord, and then she participated in a nude photo shoot for a fundraiser. And then she justified it because in her mind, the end justified the means. And that's not the way that this works. Without discipline, we will do as we feel. And what we feel can be very misleading and not in accurate precision to the ways of God. And we would think that somehow we're still in his favor. We need to become a people of discipline once again. According to Acts 17, 11, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Isaiah 28, 10, just to name a few. I find it frustrating how the lack of discipline seems to permeate the church landscape today. We find it so difficult to even get into church, to even pick up the Bible, to even pray in a day. And yet, look at what's going on around us. Jehovah's Witnesses will go door to door and endure rejection time and time again for their false doctrine. Muslims they will pray five times a day if they're devout, if they're orthodox in their, in their religion. And even the Hindus, the Hindus will pray five times per day at 5 a.m., 9 a.m., 1 p.m., 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. And they're even encouraged to pray for the full hour so that they're praying five hours a day. How about the Buddhists? For someone to become a guru in the state of Buddhism, they need to go through 100,000 repetitions of eight different practices, which take several years to accomplish. And then they'll go into a solitary retreat for three years, three months, and three days. On average, if someone maintains the life of a Buddhist monk, they will spend 2,500 hours in prayer each year to a false god. Why is it that Dwayne Johnson can work out six days a week to build superficial muscles, all because he wants to look good on a silver screen to act in a movie that no one will care about in two years. It's all frivolous. It's all going to be burned up. None of it means anything in the scope of eternity. All of these people will serve false gods. They will dedicate themselves to their ways and practices of this false doctrine. You have others who are trying to accumulate some sort of success and a a monetary value in the eyes of men and status and fame. And, And then even the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, will be so fixated on his goal of power, he won't even be enticed by women. He won't even want a woman because all he'll want is power. Why is it? That pride, arrogance, power, false religion, all of these things seem to yield greater disciplines than us who are being prepared to be joined with the God of the universe forever through the only way, the only way of truth and life, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're to be yoked with him forever and ever. And yet, none of that seems to drive a discipline 
that we might even pick up our Bible today or even pray today. We're being groomed to be yoked with the God of the universe forever and ever to reign on a throne over all that he has created, to rule over nations, and yet we seem to lack discipline in anything related to what that means to be groomed for him. I remember my grandmother, she uh, went through these, uh, she, she grew up in a very wealthy family. And I'll tell you what happened in that in a moment, because it's a side of the family I never met. Uh, they were part of the Houston family. My grandmother's last name was Houston of Sam Houston. And so they used to associate with many wealthy families. So she went to various schools where she'd have to balance books on her head Uh, She would have to go through all of these disciplines, even how to set tables and so forth. She was being groomed to be married to someone else of influence, affluence, and power, right? She, She went through all of these processes because they were looking for her to be married to someone like them. It's interesting because here the scriptures have highlighted the fact time and time again that we are being groomed to be yoked with Jesus Christ forever, over all that he has created in the universe. And yet, there we have a situation where my grandmother was being disciplined for some earthly gain of some sort, some some treasure that was going to be fleeting and rusty and where moths might destroy it. Of course, she ended up rebelling against that, ended up marrying the boy on the other side of the track. So I was birthed out of rebellion, if you will. It's an interesting family story. Uh, never met that side of the family. But all of that practice that went into place uh, to train and equip her for that role of being a spouse. And the Bible tells us when we partake of communion, we are even taking of the elements to remind us to whom we're betrothed to. Under the hoopah, we have partaken of these food elements of the bread and of the wine as a a reminder to whom we're betrothed and that Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, will come back to us and will take us unto himself. And there we go to the wedding feast with the lamb and then we will reign at his side forever and ever on thrones over all the kingdoms that he has established. And yet none of that seems to drive us to action. None of that seems to drive discipline out of his people. And this will be such an important teaching of the Lord Jesus that he repeats it throughout the Gospels, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even the same principles that are repeated throughout the book of John. And the people who've responded to this kind of teaching of saying we need to be a people of discipline devotion, and dedication. These are the kind of people who held nothing back from God and became world changers, changing the course of history. People who were consecrated and dedicated themselves on a level that most people haven't even considered. I I think of many, like Jim Elliott, the Aka missionary who died at 28 years of age. He said, God, I pray thee, Light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Oh, what a, what a dedication. And it cost him everything. Jonathan Edwards. Oh, he wrote some powerful words. The Lord used him mightily because he was willing to pay the price. He was willing to count the cost and follow Jesus, even if it cost him everything. Listen to the words that he wrote. I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding. This will, 
these afflictions that are in me, neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told him I have given myself wholly to him. I have given every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I've expressly promised him, for by his grace I will not fail. I take him as my whole portion and felicity, looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness. His law is the constant rule of my obedience. I will fight with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I will adhere to the faith of the gospel, however hazardous and difficult the profession and practice of it may be. Now, those are the kind of words of consecration. That's what it means to be dedicated to being set apart as an instrument for God, and God used that man beyond imagination. Now, throughout Matthew chapter 10, we have looked at the principles for effective mission work. We've also looked at what it meant when the Lord Jesus said he was sending out his people as sheep among wolves and the seriousness of that. And then in Matthew 10, 24, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher. And then he goes on to say, nor a servant above his master. What we have to ask ourselves in this, is it enough? Is he enough? Because in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, it says, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. That's the goal, is that we become like him, learning to be Christ-like in the everydayness of life. 1 John 2.6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We are to emulate the Father, or the Son by way of the Father. We're to look as he looked, do as he did. As he served those on the streets, as he tended to the wounded, the broken, as we read in Isaiah 58 of what true service to the Lord looks like, we can't be complacent in our mediocrity anymore. We cannot be the church of Laodicea anymore. It is time that we rise up as people after God's own heart. Let me encourage you with this. I want, I want, to, I want you to think about these words in Matthew 10, 25a. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. You, you see, for Satan, Jesus wasn't enough. He, he wasn't enough to serve him forever and ever. He wanted to be more. He wanted more. He probably thought he could do it better. There was pride, arrogance in his heart. There was a, a tower of Babel on his heart, as we see even from Ezekiel chapter 28. For Judas, Jesus wasn't enough. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough that you would sacrifice all in this world of the temporary treasures that it offers and, and live for that which is eternal? Will we be like Esau? Will we sell our birthright for soup rather than living all for the glory of the Lord and giving up all that this world may offer for his glorious purposes? He tells us that this will be tough. If they said that he was of Beelzebub, how much more will they accuse us likewise? How much more will they... Come against us as we stand for truth and righteousness in this culture. But I will tell you that according to John 15, 18 to 21, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. You see, all of these things the Lord was wanting us to be reminded of because he knows that we are quick to stumble. We are quick to be discouraged when adversity comes our way. And believe me, I believe that adversity is looming for the believer. We need to take a bold stand for Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Let me close with these powerful reminders to you of why we need to stay the course. Listen to what the Lord Jesus has for you. In 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. He then talks about the everlasting crown, the victorious crown in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. The crown of the soul winner of Philippians 4, 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8. The crown of life in James 1, 12 and Revelation 2, 10. And the crown of glory. In 1 Peter 5, 4, in addition to all of these crowns, the Lord has so much more for you, the faithful. Revelation 2, 7, you have the right to eat from the tree of life in paradise with God. You have eternal life, immortality, according to Revelation 2, 11. You have the right to eat of the hidden manna, which was formerly in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant. It means you can be in the presence of God without dying, according to Revelation 2, 17. You receive a white stone. That's the Urim in Revelation 2.17. You receive a new name, according to Revelation 2.17. Authority over nations, according to Revelation 2.26. Unity with Christ forever, according to Revelation 2.28. You receive a white robe of your cleanliness, your purity, your authority, according to Revelation 3.4-5. Eternal citizenship in heaven, Revelation 3.5. Your name is stamped in the pillar in the temple of God, according to Revelation 3.12. And the Lord's new name is written on you, according to Revelation 3.12 and Revelation 19.12. And then get this, you have the right to sit with Christ on his throne forever, according to Revelation 3.21. Now, if that doesn't give you a sense of purpose, I don't know what will. When he calls us to discipleship, to discipline, to submission to the master, do not be discouraged or dismayed when the world is tossed to and fro. We stand on a solid rock in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want you to be assured, brethren, that if you are with him, you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope you've been encouraged today, despite what the landscape may look like, whether you are happy by the election results or whether you were discouraged or even discouraged by the activities thereafter, whatever may be running through your mind right now as you are examining the state of affairs in our nation, do not be discouraged. Our Lord still reigns on high. And if you know him as your personal Lord and Savior, you are guaranteed victory in Christ Jesus, no matter what adversity you may experience.